1: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and the rest of the world. And as ever, we have got a lot to cram in in our time together. So if it's okay with all of you, what we'll do is a couple of assembly notices, very brief. Uh, then I'm going to reflect on some of the kind of mythology around the moment. Uh, Boris Johnson, there he is still in number 10, already contemplating his comeback. That's uh, worth exploring because it sort of shines light on a mentality of a prime minister in his or her dying days. I'm going to look at the real Margaret Thatcher rather than the mythological one. And then if there's time, a bit about uh, uh, Keir Starmer's latest speech, economic growth, economic growth, economic growth, education, education, education. Anyway, uh, if there's uh, time, and then uh, some of your brilliant questions. All the questions were brilliant. Uh, There were a lot of fantastic ones. One uh, on education from a teacher. I haven't got time to read that one out this week. If you're listening now, which I know you will be, but there will be time to reflect on other themes uh, when things sort of—I was going to say calm down—but that's wholly the wrong term. British politics is going to erupt with more dramas after September the fifth, whoever is elected as prime minister. More of that shortly, uh, but before then, as I say, a couple of assembly notices for you all. Just a reminder: the Edinburgh Festival is kicking off very soon, and I'm going to be there with a live show, Rock and Roll Politics, from August the 15th. I'll put the link where you can get tickets on the blurb for this podcast, Um, but you can also get it at the uh, Edinburgh Fringe uh, website if you put in Rock and Roll Politics or Steve Richards. It's live at uh, Symposium Hall, the space Symposium Hall, every day from August the 15th at 11 o'clock. So what you do, you start your day with some rock and roll politics. Um, Also, thank you so much to those of you who subscribe to the Patreon version of the podcast. A new bonus podcast will be coming up at the beginning of August, uh, looking at the relationship between uh, David Cameron and Steve Hilton and comparing that with the relationship between Theresa May and Nick Timothy, the final one in our series of relationships between prime ministers and their chosen kind of special figure in number 10. Uh, We've done Harold Wilson and Marcia Williams, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. And now we're going to look at both Cameron and uh, what's his name, Steve Hilton, almost forgot him, and then uh, Theresa May and Nick Timothy. So you get that bonus podcast with many other bonus podcasts on Patreon. Now, where do we start with all the uh, dramas playing around at the moment? Let's start with the fantasies of Boris Johnson because it is it, it kind of shines light on power. Most prime ministers spend a lot of time tormented in number 10. I was very struck when I wrote my book on modern prime ministers, how many of them were pretty miserable uh, in number 10, but how few of them wanted to let go. Uh, The only one indeed was Harold Wilson, who voluntarily went in 1976. The rest of them, one way or another, were forced out, were liberated from their torment through force. They didn't choose to go. And in that cocooned atmosphere of number 10, prime ministers can very quickly assume that they are somehow indispensable. Johnson is, in many ways, a freakish prime minister. But the mood we're getting from number 10 that he thinks he'll be back soon, Tim Montgomery tweeted, uh, someone had told him in number 10, Johnson's going around saying, I'll be back as prime minister within a year. Uh, His final prime minister's questions, he left on a note of ambiguity about uh, returning. All the briefings suggest Johnson thinks his career as a kind of prime ministerial figure is far from over. No doubt he reflects on his hero Winston Churchill, who had many ups and downs in his career, but always tended to bounce back. Even after the election defeat in 1945, which looked a kind of final climactic for Churchill, he was back as prime minister in 1951. And Johnson no doubt thinks similarly. This is his final fantasy. As I say, not that unusual. Uh, Margaret Thatcher dared to hope and indeed assume In the early days of her exile, having been removed from number 10, that her party would realize that they had made a terrible mistake and call for her evangelical leadership once again. Uh, The same with Tony Blair. Tony Blair, towards the end of his time as prime minister, equated overtly the national interest with his continuing as prime minister. At one point, he kind of used the metaphor of a marriage between himself and the British people. Um, And he said, look, you know, after Iraq, a long time after I said, look, you know, it's a bit like a marriage. I've had to turn away, but I'm back. He, too, more recently uh, has contemplated at the very least, uh, returning as Labour leader. When Andrew Adonis used to tweet on a regular basis that Labour should bring back Tony Blair, he wasn't doing that in isolation. It followed conversations with Tony Blair. And when there is talk, as there often is, about a new party on that mythical centre ground, um, there have been moments where Tony Blair has wondered whether he could do a Macron and return to power via that route. Deluded. Even now, Andrew Donis accepts this is never going to happen. But it crossed his mind. And it is the case with Johnson as well. But as he's going to discover, I think, very quickly, when the harsh reality hits him, his leadership is not going to be viewed uh, as one that people want to return to. At this moment, it's a very odd moment for a leader. He is still prime minister, He's going around, as usual, dressing up in bombers' uniforms and, you know, going on various flights with military aircraft and fulfilling all his fantasy still, as he did when he was prime minister without an end date. Uh, We've talked on this podcast many times about he's only at ease as a public figure when dressing up. So he's doing even more dressing up. He's spending a lot of time at checkers. He's hanging out with people who are all telling him he was robbed. And in that interim period, uh, strange thoughts go through a prime minister's mind. And this is a long interim, by the way. Remember, Cameron was prime minister only really for a few more days after he announced his resignation because the Tories had a silly leadership contest where all the candidates fell by the wayside except for Theresa May. And so Cameron was gone very quickly. That's more typical of a prime ministerial transition. Margaret Thatcher, a few days after she was kicked out and John Major moved in. Johnson has chosen deliberately, knowing it would be a long leadership contest, to stay on. And you can see how he is framing an argument about his time, again copying Churchill. He said, history will be kind to me. I plan to write it, uh, lifting the quote from Churchill. So you know what that history is going to be like, because he said it several times in recent days. He got the big calls right. Uh, He got Brexit done. He got Uh, control to the United Kingdom. Uh, He was a triumph during the pandemic. And then he's been the hero in the war uh, in Ukraine. Now, all of these are fantastical claims in themselves. Brexit isn't done. And I think it will become increasingly acceptable for people to raise in public what a disaster Brexit is. We have been living through this surreal, insane period where the consequences of Brexit are being played out with calamitous consequences, that word, and there has been silence in much of the media and in the political arena. I think with Johnson going, actually, there will be space opening up for more public recognition of the damage done. And as an example of this, although it is very tentative, you know, Labour leaders aren't linking Brexit with the chaos in Dover with those nightmarish queues uh, with Brexit. They're too scared still to do it, but it has come up again and again. Uh, Simon Calder, the great travel expert who I used to know both at the BBC and at The Independent, actually, has just put it very plainly. In media outlet after me, he was even allowed on the BBC, who's still very scared to talk about Brexit. And he's made it absolutely clear that the problems uh, at Dover are to do with Brexit, that Britain chose to make that the border. And therefore, for passports not only to be uh, stamped, but there has to be evidence that people haven't been to the EU beyond a certain time. They have to show proof that they're going somewhere and they've got the funds to support them there. Uh, This was Britain's chosen Brexit, Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost's. Brexit. Lord Frosty Frost was up saying blaming the French again, like he blames Europe for what's happening in Northern Ireland. They negotiated it. And at some point, more space will open up. Whether the Labour leadership will ever dare to occupy that space is an uncertain question. But anyway, uh, Johnson going around saying, ah, I got it, Brexit done, Brexit done, uh, uh, freed us, freed us from Europe is going to look, I think, increasingly contentious when he's left office, when his control over the newspapers isn't as strong as it is even now to this very day. He dominated the whole of the Sunday Express yesterday. Not that many of you will have seen it, but I can report on your behalf uh, that he did. A long piece about all his triumphs. So that's a mythology I'm pretty sure the inquiry into the pandemic will be condemning of his conduct and the chaos of his conduct. We know what it was like from the inquiries that have already taken place. And that a lot of the sensible wing of Number 10, as far as there was one, was pleased when Johnson buggered off to Checkers as the pandemic was raging towards the UK from Europe because they knew that his presence would be so dangerous and destructive. And that was the starting point of Johnson's leadership in relation to the pandemic, which he now claims as a great triumph. And Ukraine, A, I think he has been vaguely posturing in his approach to Ukraine. He's never been clear uh, what victory for Ukraine would look like and how it should come about, although he's been more jingoistic about it all recently. And his phone calls with Zelensky were used crudely. Whenever there was a crisis in Number 10, uh, a briefing went out within an hour that Johnson had had a call with uh, Zelensky, as if that would uh, counter all the other stuff whirling around. And I think he used Ukraine in an attempt to keep his job. Now, that is. Uh, examples of the stuff that Johnson gives to claim greatness in number 10 and will continue to use um, as he hopes people will turn to him to continue his glorious leadership in uh, the months to come. But that's not it at all, alone. He is leaving chaos in the NHS, chaos over the social care policy, labour shortages everywhere you look, consequences Brexit consequences. I suspect pretty quickly the idea, and I know some Tory party members are clamouring for Johnson to be allowed to stay on, and if not to stay on, to return as soon as is feasible. I think that clamour will subside very quickly. And the UK, or parts of it anyway, will wonder what the hell has happened over these three years. Years. But it is fascinating that prime ministers, when still in number 10, although they're about to go, and in this case, oh, incidentally, another thing's going to happen. He's going to do an honours list that will uh, wreck his reputation. Not that he's got a reputation amongst some of us already, but for those who continue to revere him, they will be challenged by the honours list. I say that because that's what happens to prime ministers who take the piss with honours lists. Uh, Harold Wilson never recovered from his resignation honours list. You know the so-called lavender list with Marcia Williams uh, writing the people who got the honours on lavender paper It was actually a list that was far more varied than it is rumoured that Johnson's one will be. A lot of uh, non-business people and, you know, deserving people were on Wilson's list, but he gave honours to business people who were under all kinds of investigations at the time with a resolute indifference to the consequences. And the consequence was that really no one rushed to put the case for Wilson for many years. And it was to do really with that honours list. It sort of, and by the way, Wilson was not, uh, was a giant compared with Johnson and a figure of great integrity compared with Johnson. The idea that Wilson would break rules during a pandemic that he himself had set to host a load of parties is uh, just inconceivable. But there was a view of Wilson and it was a one-sided view. It was more complicated than that of a a devious figure who couldn't be trusted. And the resignation honours list reinforced that caricature for decades. And I suspect with Johnson's as well, it will confirm the idea. Here is someone who put Evgeny Lebedev in in the Lords and he's going to do the same with Dacre and others, that this was a figure with no sense of any moral purpose whatsoever. It will be interesting to see whether at some point Johnson's leadership, which will be definitely one of the historic ones, one of many with many historic consequences, whether it will ever be lifted. Now, one figure whose historic reputation is being lifted constantly is uh, Margaret Thatcher. For one obvious reason, she is defining, yet again, a Tory leadership contest. At the weekend, it was hilarious. There was Mrs Sunak, I don't know if you saw the front page of the Sunday Times, worshipping at... uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher's statue in Grantham, Uh, Sunak, I am the Thatcherite, I am the follower of Margaret Thatcher. And of course, Liz Truss famously continuing to dress up like Margaret Thatcher and so on. The hold she's got is incredible and indeed deeply flattering. A leader who left office in 1990, you know, that's a long time to cast a spell over a party. And the spell here is more overwhelming than even recent Tory leadership contests. So on that level, her reputation as this legendary figure is reinforced on a sort of near hourly basis at the moment. But it is in another way, too. And this is one where many non-conservatives fall into a trap, really, of elevating Margaret Thatcher, where they say, my God, she was at least a titan compared to these two shallow revolutionaries. Now, it is absolutely right, compared to these two shallow revolutionaries, uh, she was a big figure of uh, rounded depth, but only in comparison. She herself actually was a pretty shallow revolutionary as well. You know our favourite word on the podcast, consequences. Uh, She was never deep enough to think through the consequences of her policies. And many of the ideas around them, uh, though she was surrounded by people of greater philosophical depth from Sir Keith Joseph to various figures in right-wing think tanks, Michael Hestein used to say she would quite often come into cabinet and say, "Well, I bumped into somebody in my constituency who said they were worried about um, mortgage repayments," so and, and and a whole sort of economic policy would surface based on a conversation she had had with a constituent or something. You, you know, it wasn't that deep, and she never thought through the consequences the most emblematic of that was her famous policy on council house sales. There she was hailing the fact that tenants of local authority places were becoming homeowners like the great figures in the Tory tribe. And it did lead to a kind of realignment in politics. Um, But that was it. She sold off the council homes, proclaimed a new generation of property owners, but then failed to address the fundamental consequence. What do you do with affordable housing, given that a load of it was going on to the wacky private sector market, where prices could soar or fall or soar or fall, and suddenly there would be this demand for affordable rented housing. What do you do? And the only answer is you'd have to build some more. But she wasn't interested in that. That would have involved the hard grind of consequences rather than the political theatre of a radical act. So in the economic gloom of the 1970s, it was it's really interesting, hundreds of thousands of affordable homes were built each year. And it was in the 1980s that it was only a handful here and there. And that carried on in the 1990s till now. There are housing targets for this government which won't be met uh, because it's tough. You have to find the places, you have to build them. It takes a coordination on an epic level and she wasn't interested. It was the same with the miners' strike in the mid-80s, one of the great sort of totemic industrial disputes. In inverted commas, she won the miners' strike. She defeated Arthur Scargill, and she was on as big a high as she was after the Falklands and made a direct comparison uh, by saying they had now defeated the enemy within. Quite something to say about miners when you think about it. But then there was the hard grind of what to do with the communities who had been dependent on mining uh, for work and for work and socialising and, and income. And she wasn't interested. And so these communities became ghost towns. It was I, I lived in uh, County Durham in the mid-1980s, quite near Concert. And you go to Concert and it was empty. And mining towns in Northumberland uh, were similarly empty. And I know that applied elsewhere. It's really interesting, you know, in that period, she would sometimes recognise... That there were consequences to her, uh, her brutal approach to economics and industrial policy, but she would only sort of pluck out one place to become a bit more interventionist. And so, in the mid kind of or early to mid '80s, she chose Corby in Northamptonshire, uh, which was going to be the jewel in the crown. And she worked quite closely, or the government centrally worked quite closely, with a Labour-dominated local council and she created in corby something called an urban development corporation which was run centrally by the department of the environment so even though there were big job losses in the steel industry in corby i worked there i was the bbc's our man in corby in the early 80s it was it was a separate function of bbc radio northampton my first job in local radio and i was became our man in corby and it was fascinating and it sort of worked as a model of intervention, although actually the town itself was still pretty moribund. There was certainly more life there than in some of the deserted communities elsewhere. Consequences. It was the same with the poll tax. There was a kind of theoretical, compelling argument for the poll tax local authorities need to be accountable. And the best way to make them accountable is for virtually every adult to pay a local tax. That's how accountability is forged, really. But a flat rate took no account of people's ability to pay, was bound to have consequences. So that is the kind of real Thatcher. People are exploring the degree to which Liz Truss is mythologizing uh, Thatcherism, in terms of taxes and their right to do so. Her view was much closer to Sunak's. Uh, you know, she used to go around saying, again, in a very, as Hesseltine pointed out, very simplistic way My father, in his grocer's shop in Grantham, never, ever spent more than he earned, and a country can't spend more than it earns. Uh, now, it, it's sort of economic nonsense, you know, because a state is very different from a shop. But that was her thinking. You balance the books. So the 79 manifesto, Liz Truss should read it. So should the Tory party membership. Talked openly about transferring from direct to indirect taxation. So there could be cuts in one form of tax, but the money would be raised by tax increases elsewhere. So, for example, they put up VAT in uh, very early on in their uh, 79 to 83 first term government and other taxes. And the one they all revere, Lawson's budget, which cut the top rate of tax, that happened in 1988. She'd been in power for nine years by then. So the idea that she was this great tax cutter uh, as a way of triggering growth, I think there was a bit of her that thought, without any evidence, that tax cuts did trigger economic growth. But she was much more of a sort of balance the books Thatcherite, and uh, Reagan was very different in America. Her mate Reagan, he cut taxes all over the place and paid for it by borrowing, as Truss suggests, um, and actually that gave uh, Bill Clinton the space uh, in uh, when he became president in nineteen ninety uh, to nineteen ninety two to argue that uh, he would be more responsible than the Republicans in uh, uh, being careful with the deficit and debt and so on. The mythologies about her are uh, deeply flattering and distorting, actually. And, uh, and and everyone's falling into the trap because these two candidates are pretty uh, shallow and insubstantial and not fully formed. It's, it's, it's easy to forget that uh, Rishi Sunak was elevated with such sudden speed to the chancellorship in an early manifestation of the madness of the Johnson regime, when Johnson and Cummings, in effect, sacked Javid by forcing him to remove his special advisers. Um, suddenly there he was, you know, chancellor. Political heavyweights are formed by Great internal battles and uh, facing the electorate in all kinds of challenging situations. And that hasn't really happened with these two. The other thing which made Thatcher uh, slightly more expedient and weightier was her time as education secretary, actually. She had been in this uh, uh, big spending department and understood the kind of pressures from that perspective. These two, I suppose Liz Truss has been around. She's been in the cabinet for forever. No one, I think, even their greatest admirers, would recognize at this stage a great weightiness. Maybe some people do with Sunak. William Hague wrote a piece saying he is special, and Hague does know him. To be politically fully formed, you need more time and space than he's had as chancellor in admittedly wacky context of a pandemic and Boris Johnson's chaotic number 10. But there we go. Oh, yeah. I will, I'll be going on for too long. Uh, the, the Keir Starmer talk, uh, he, he's made a, an interesting speech in um, uh, Liverpool this week and one or two other things. Uh, maybe uh, next week, a Keir Starmer special or something along those lines, maybe, depending on what else is going on. But let's now, I think, get to your questions. And for those of you who want to ask questions, uh, the email address is steverick14 at iCloud.com. Steve Rick.
0: Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Now, again, I've got loads of questions this week on a whole variety of topics. Uh, Some I think I've uh, covered, actually, uh, in my opening thoughts but hopefully we will return to some of those. But just with all the stuff whirling around at the moment, I've focused more on some of those. And, and some have slightly dated because these things are moving quite quickly. But anyway, thank you. Do keep them coming in. And uh, I promise you, I read them all. And it shapes my thinking one way or another. But let's go first of all to Scott Taylor. He said, oh, Scott, I love the podcast and listen to it when walking along the coast here in Fife. And I hope to see you at your Edinburgh show. Oh, that'd be great. See you there, Scott. Yeah, I envy you being able to walk the coast in Fife. Um, Maybe I'll try and get to Fife during the festival. Anyway, uh, and let's go on to the essence of your uh, email. I'm being driven mad by the use of center ground uh, during the Tory leadership contest. Yeah, it is. You know, I mentioned it last week, but uh, quite a few BBC presenters are saying it's uh, Rishi Sunak, the centrist against Liz Truss, the right winger. They're both on the right. You know, there's different grades of two people on the right. Anyway, he, he he's given me a link which I'll tell you what it is. Um, I thought you might enjoy reading a, a speech delivered by W.B. Gailey at the Aristotelian Society. It's in 1956. Anyway, there's a, if you Google that, you'll get to it. Um, I'm going to read it, Scott. I haven't yet. Gailey coined the term essentially contested concept to help us understand how we can have a common understanding of an abstract notion such as justice, while at the same time totally disagreeing on how justice is to be interpreted. Could this framework be a good way to explain how the meaning of centre ground can perhaps be agreed upon at a very abstract level, But at the same time, that term provides no indication of what a centre ground might look like. Uh, Yeah, well, what worries me is I think the abstract, uh, Scott, with the the centre ground could be abused too. Because people tend to kind of place it wherever their own views are and sometimes very vague views. So I don't even know if there's an abstract definition that can root this centre ground in a place that everyone can then debate about. Over to Cardiff now, from Fife to Cardiff. Alan, you didn't leave your surname, Alan. Uh, But Alan says, always enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Alan. I read in a study that Britain has one of the lowest percentages of the voting population In Europe, who are also party members, only Latvia and Romania have lower party memberships. Just under a million people in Britain have party affiliation, which is tiny compared to the National Trust, which has four million members. To be honest, Alan, I'm surprised it's a a million. It's a really uh, difficult issue, this, uh, because uh, all non-Tories are saying at the moment, justifiably, Why is it that this tiny Tory membership is electing a prime minister? Well, the answer, of course, is that England, at least, tends to vote Conservative given half a chance at every general election. But the Conservatives themselves are often in turmoil. So very quickly, they then get rid of the elected prime minister for whatever reason. So this is the third time since 2015, this tiny party membership uh, uh, getting the vote, Alan. But uh, when Jeremy Corbyn was Labour leader and party membership soared, a lot of people also got worked up about that because it was the kind of membership that they disapproved of. That was got so many Labour MPs worked up amongst others and the media. Uh, so is, is a big party membership a good thing? I think um, many of you have emailed to me to suggest that party members shouldn't elect A leader. It should go back to uh, MPs. Now, there is a strong case for that, but it's never going to happen because no leader will dare deprive the membership in such a way. So we're stuck with it. I think it is good to have big party memberships. You just have to define what it is to be a member to make sure it's within certain boundaries. Thank you, Alan. Uh, Now we go to France and Dominica Jewell. I think that the entire fiasco at Dover has been succinctly summed up by Monsieur Bowen. Bowen? How do you pronounce it, Dominica? Uh, He's he's the transport secretary, counterpart of Grant Shapps. And when he said today, la France n'est pas responsable du Brexit... Dominique, I'm sorry about that terrible French accent. Um, anyway, Dominique has provided translation. We don't need it, Dominica. Anyway, the translation is France not responsible for Brexit. From this, every Brexiter argument is definitively demolished. Well, I already mentioned our transport guy, Dominica Simon Calder, making it absolutely clear this is a Brexit consequence. And it's got to be out there. And Brexiteers can continue to justify what they did, but they must be made aware of these consequences. And I suspect they're all blaming France, but it's, as Simon Calder made clear, a British decision to put the boundaries there. It wasn't the EU demanding it, it was Lord Frosty Frost and Johnson demanding it. And then they blame everybody else for sticking to the rules that they demanded. It is so topsy-turvy. Anyway, thank you, Dominica. Uh, John McIntosh uh, suggests, related to this thing, in tribute to the famous Conservative Sachi and Sachi poster of 1979 with the endless doll cue saying Labour isn't working. Yeah, that was a famous 79 poster. Why don't Labour just take an aerial view of the lorry queues to Dover saying Brexit isn't working? I don't want any royalties for the idea, by the way. Well, John, you won't make any money out of it. From, uh, because Labour aren't going to do it; um, they're too scared. When Brexit goes obviously wrong, they are still too scared at this point to shout about it. Um, and uh, you know, th- there are people briefing in Keir Starmer's office. There's no buyer's remorse. Well, there never is in politics. Never uh, in general elections, people don't voters so, don't ever admit they get things wrong, but they do feel betrayed. And that's a powerful emotion which uh, Labour could make much more of. Remember, there's a wonderful um, uh, video on Twitter. It's all the clips of Johnson, Rees-Mogg and all the others saying there will be absolutely no disturbances at Dover post-Brexit. Look at what has happened. Betrayal. That's what some voters at some point will start to feel. And if they are blaming France at the moment, following the newspapers they read and their own instincts, at some point, the art of politics is about persuading. Uh, And when you've got reality on your side, persuasion can be quite powerful. Now we go to Southampton. Armando Martino, I wonder if you could give a view of the just released Ford report into the factionalism in Labour under Corbyn's leadership. From a lefty perspective, I think that is Armando's perspective, I think it's deeply troubling that a democratically elected leader of the opposition was undermined so blatantly. This is the report into the internal tensions of the Labour Party under uh, Jeremy Corbyn, which just erupted really with... um, Parts of the Labour headquarters clearly attempting to undermine Corbyn's leadership. Uh, The Corbyn leadership team paranoid about what was going on at Labour headquarters. The whole thing erupting into a panorama, which Armando describes as one-sided. It was a miracle. It made the gains it did in 2017. Well, my view of it uh, is I haven't read the report, to be honest, because um, I've been focusing more on the Tory stuff. My view of it is that it was scandalous that some could not accept the fact that uh, Corbyn won a leadership contest uh, under rules that they themselves had devised. You just have to accept these things. And the fact that there were attempts to undermine him was uh, deeply, as I say, it's just dysfunctional. It's just dysfunctional. The interesting thing about the Corbyn leadership is that when he got it, he was complete. I mean, I know halfway through the contest, he realized he was going to be made leader. When he stood, he had no intention of, uh, no thoughts about winning. He'd never run anything. And although he is hardline on policy, his character was fairly emollient. So the first thing he tried to do was get everyone into his shadow cabinet, including all the candidates in that leadership contest and others from other wings of his uh, party. He was pretty pragmatic at first. They all refused to serve. I think Kir Starman was right to agree to serve. You try and make something work. Then I think when you know, he, was, he was accommodating to an absurd extent. Do you remember when uh, there was that debate about Syria and Corbyn opened it, opposed to military intervention, and his foreign affairs spokesman, Hilary Bent, ended it supporting military intervention? Corbyn accommodated all of this. But then there was the attempted coup after the Brexit referendum where ironically, Corbyn was closer to where Labour has now ended up, uh, wanting to sort of just get on with Brexit, whereas those who now are in that position condemned him for being too willing to accept Brexit. There was the attempted coup, and then there was no attempt at reconciliation. It was all-out war on both sides from that moment on, and it was disastrous. And I I gather from what I've read, uh, and I've read more than the sort of one-sided uh, reports from whatever side people come from. The Ford report kind of confirms all of this. And, um, you know, if you wonder why Labour loses elections, you need to delve quite deeply into what happened in that sort of Corbyn era. And although you say Armando Martino from Southampton, you are to the left of me, I'm sure I, I don't, you know, these, these terms, you know what I my view of these terms are, uh, you know, <laughs> they invite much greater definition. I've always thought that although Corbyn was wholly unsuited for the huge demands of leadership and it would have been miraculous for him to become suddenly suited, having been on the back benches since 1983, I've always thought it's wrong of Labour MPs to publicly attack him from within seconds of him winning the first time round. And as I've said here many times and elsewhere, I think Keir Starmer was wrong or is wrong to suspend him from the parliamentary party, both strategically and as a proportionate response uh, to what Corbyn has said on that thorny issue of anti-Semitism, where he did conclude his statement uh, in response to the report on anti-Semitism, which was what triggered his suspension first from the Labour Party and now from the Parliamentary Labour Party. One anti-Semite is one too many in the Labour Party, which of course is a statement of the obvious. But it was a muddy time and I gather the Ford report clarifies some of the uh, muddiness on both sides and it, it, if i had the energy i'd read it and probably get miserable thank you very much armando and finally uh Venetia Kane asks, who was the worst prime minister, David Cameron or Boris Johnson? One answer might be obvious, Johnson, because of his appalling mendacity, laziness, narcissism, etc. But I would argue a case for saying that David Cameron was the worst for having called the very referendum which led not only to Brexit, but also to Boris Johnson. I've got absolutely no doubt in my mind that certainly the responsibility for Brexit and therefore the rise of Boris Johnson, which is wholly linked to Brexit, is David Cameron, I've never blamed the Brexiteers for fighting the uh, referendum campaign on a load of lies about Turkey joining, all this money that was going to be available for the NHS uh, when it's cost us a fortune to leave. All those things you have to do if you're in the middle of a campaign. The mistake was to create the campaign in the first place. Referendum campaigns, once they've been called, people it's a war. It's the it's a political war, not a military war, and people uh, make all kinds of claims. I don't blame the BBC either; they are inevitably with the BBC endless post mortems. Did we give too much weight to these lies? And so, they, their job was to report what both sides were saying, and for us a lot to decide. And unsurprisingly, large numbers decided that they were going to believe the uh, Brexiteers, and the fault for all of that an issue of such multi-layered complexity should never have been the subject of a referendum. I loathe referendums. Um, we've got this thing called representative democracy, you know. So, Venetia, I'm with you. I think David Cameron has a lot to answer for. He was called a centrist. He wasn't, a, you know, these, this term, centrist, left, right? They need much more precise definition. Anyway, uh, if it's okay with all of you, I think um, you'll have all ran and bread, And, you know, walked along the river or the coast in Fife and uh, done some great things. So we'll stop for now if that's okay. But let's all get together next week. A heck of a lot going on. Some of you, I hope you'll be listening in the six hour queue at Dover waiting to get out of this bloody country, just, you know, taking back control, possible to move anywhere. Um, that's freedom for you. Uh, but thanks so much for listening. Uh, see you all again next week. And oh, if you could leave a review, that is great. Uh, it helps everything. Helps the entire world. Rumor has it, but only if you like it. So only if it's a positive review. That's that's essential. And um, yeah, thank you for listening. Keep the questions coming in. I'll read more out next week. And don't forget, if you're on Patreon, uh, beginning of August, a new bonus podcast. We've just been talking about Cameron. Uh, His relationship with Steve Hilton, fascinating. And then contrasting that with Theresa May and Nick Timothy, both ending in tears in very, very different ways. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week and see you all very soon. Bye.